Welcome to the Iterative Podcast. Today we have Tim Gresson, co-founder of TendoPay. TendoPay is the largest online installment provider in the Philippines. They offer a virtual credit card that allows consumers to shop on over 100 retailers with as low as 0% interest. TendoPay was part of our first batch of companies and grew 10x during the program. Tim has an interesting background. His parents were French diplomats, so he grew up in places as diverse as Kenya and Finland. We talk about how his early experiences might have shaped him as an entrepreneur, how he quit finance to start a design agency that designed PowerPoint presentations, of all things, how he got his first few customers and eventually built it into a multi-million dollar business. We also talk about how, even after that success, he still wanted to build a tech startup and a chance encounter in the Philippines made him move there to start TendoPay. His story of how they tested the idea for TendoPay by building a fake website so they could test a fake payment option is one of my favorite. I hope you stay and listen. Here's my conversation with Tim Grassin from TendoPay. Thanks for being here. Do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what TendoPay does? Hey, Sukin. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Tim, uh, Tim Grassin, as you mentioned. I'm one of the founders of TendoPay, uh, and I also manage growth. Uh, so TendoPay is a buy now, pay later company located in the Philippines, where I've been based for two and a half years. I'm originally from France, but traveled all over and built a few businesses back in Canada. So you were born in France, but you didn't grow up in France. Yeah, that's correct. I I did grow up for the first six years. And then uh, my dad being a diplomat, we sort of moved around quite a lot. So we traveled throughout Europe, uh, a bit of Africa, and then I decided to go and study in Canada. So yeah, no real French background, but uh, mostly European, I'd say. I'm moving around a lot, I think, as a kid is like an interesting kind of like influence probably on you. Um, What kind of kid were you growing up? Yes, it's definitely uh, an interesting an interesting trajectory as a kid because basically every three to four years we pick up and go. You have to adapt to an entirely new environment. And I'm talking about going from minus 20 in Finland to plus 30 in Kenya. So new languages, new cultures, new people. And as a kid, you have to adapt. Yeah, You have to conquer that. So I don't know if it impacted my uh, entrepreneurship uh, that much, but it did impact me as a person. I think it made me quite social and tr- quite curious about new things and the exposure to different cultures, I think just made me want to always dig, dive deeper into wherever I moved and, and also made me want to move constantly. Basically staying in Canada for 12 years was the longest I'd ever stayed anywhere. Uh, I spent five or six years in Montreal and the rest in Toronto, but by, by the sixth year in Toronto, I had the itch to move. And that's why TendoPay in the Philippines was such a perfect project for me, basically. My brother and I used to move every nine months, I think, too. Wow. So we went, I went to like, I think like six or seven different schools before I was 10. Um, and my, no, my, my father used to be, uh, he worked for Intel, uh, okay. like very early on since like the late seventies, I was almost born in Barbados actually. Yeah. My dad was basically Intel's fixer. He worked in their manufacturing and factories. And so he used to go to the worst performing factory and fix it. And so we would okay. move every like nine months. Maybe this is like connecting the dots after the fact, but that it helped make uh, me kind of more adaptive. Um, And so, and a a lot of startups is kind of like, you just need to adapt. You're like constantly kind of doing stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's a story I just told myself about myself. Yeah, I mean, it could be true. I've never tried to associate one with the other, um, but it is true that having to adapt is basically the bread and butter of a startup, right? You have new problems, you have to overcome them, figure out a solution, usually try to figure out the best solution and move on. 
Uh, so I guess you're right. It, it does have an impact when, as a child, you're exposed to adaptation quite a lot, and it's sort of um, mandated to you. You don't really have a choice, right? I, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I never thought that that kind of childhood was different because it was the only one that I knew. And so I just kind of assumed everybody else was like that. Um, and it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, okay, that's somewhat unique. I completely relate to that. So whenever I would come home to France for the summer, because thankfully my dad would have rather long vacations during the summer. So we'd go back every summer and I'd see my old friends or my cousins or whatever. And they'd have this sort of hometown ecosystem that I didn't have. So I was always kind of jealous of them having these friends that they've known forever or this school that they've been frequenting forever. But at the end of the day, um, I learned that, you know, I could live without it. And I actually enjoyed the benefits of my lifestyle as well. Okay. So you and I are actually even more similar because we moved around a lot, but spent every summer in Malaysia. That was always kind of like home base. So it was like, you know, you're moving around a lot, but every summer was in Malaysia. So um, pretty similar. I don't know if your family did the same thing, but my dad still has very good family values. So every summer, no matter what year, we would reunite with my entire family, like cousins and everything, usually 30 to 40 people. We take a week together and we've been perpetrating that tradition ever since I was probably six. Now, like 10 years ago, we bought this big summer house in France and we bring the entire family together for a week, uh, which I missed this year because of COVID, but it was the first time in 15 years, right? So pretty crazy. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, uh, uh, similar. I mean, we don't get to, the big, whole family doesn't get together as much now, but when we stayed in Malaysia, I lived with my grandmother. Okay. So it was like traditional Chinese home. So it was like, Very nice. there was like three or four families living in the same home, right? And I used to sleep in the bunk beds with like my grandmother every I'm summer sure, and stuff. Yeah. So. Tons, yeah. It was like, I mean, there was like 15 people in the house and, I you know, it's like that whole thing. Yeah, yeah which is great. That's um, also important as an entrepreneur is like, interacting with so many different people and having to, you know, not be likable, but be sociable and just being able to adapt to any type of conversation because you're exposed to 30 different people at once. That's super cool too. And I guess you probably had to like, I mean, if you were a diplomat son, you probably also have to go to social function. I mean, there's a lot of functions I can imagine as diplomats, right? So you probably have to like learn from an early age how to like carry yourself in kind of these places where it's like, okay, I talk to this person and, you know, yeah, so definitely a bit of that, especially towards my teenage years where we were old enough to attend those functions or be conscious of them, basically. But I would say that on top of that, my final country with my parents, which was Kenya, where I moved when I was wow. 14 or 15. Uh, and basically, I was this fully functional human being and I, was, I had ideas and I had ambitions and things were starting to grow. Like I was trying to figure out what I was, was going to do after high school. At that very moment, I was exposed to some very influential people. All of their kids were attending my school. So all of my friends' Mm. parents were either CEOs, uh, very high positions in NGOs or ambassadors and whatnot. And that kind of exposed me to a lot of things that I had no idea about. So there's absolutely no vanity in, in what I'm saying, but just being exposed to playing in these mansions, going playing golf and all these things that... I had no idea, but it kind of gave me a taste of what life could be that I didn't know about. And sort of talking to my friend's fathers who are extremely influential or very, very smart or great at what they do uh, just made me want to become like that because, of course, you have your dad and usually that's your role model growing up. But when you're exposed to more people like that, I think overall it just makes it 
feel possible to attain these types of levels in life, which, uh, again, it's not the material aspects. It's sort of feeling like you can be the best at what you do, no matter what you choose. And you have exposure to that. And they kind of explain to you how they got there. Um, so that's awesome. That, that was really useful. And I, I kind of, I'm blessed that I managed to have that lifestyle as well. That totally resonates with me because my, I was the same thing, but it was going to business dinners. My dad, he's like, Hey, you should, you should learn how to kind of this stuff works. And, um, I think it's, it's kind of the reason we're doing this podcast a little bit, right? It's like when you get some, uh, exposure to some of these people and you just kind of realize that they're like kind of regular people who are, who are kind of in these positions and stuff and they've worked quite hard and you kind of hear their stories and stuff, but it makes it more relatable coming from that that kind of background and kind of growing up, I don't really get intimidated by people nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, like I've had some friends who maybe they, I mean, it's a big privilege that I think we were able to do this, but I have some friends who maybe didn't grow up like that. And when they meet like an investor or something like that, um, they're a little bit more kind of like intimidated because they haven't kind of talked to people like that a lot. Um, but I think maybe you found it a similar thing where it's like you grew up kind of talking to people like this. And so on some level you're like, they're just a person like that's yeah. the thing to remember right tim kind of moving forward a, a fair bit um i feel like we could probably just have a personal conversation about uh growing up uh for for, for a long time but what did you study in school so i studied finance uh, i went to business school and i did finance as a specialty you worked at a hedge fund for like a little while and you went into finance for a couple of years yeah so speaking of uh you know people who influence your life a lot so when i was living in in the uk as a younger child um, one of my best buddies, his dad was working in finance. Uh, I didn't know about it at the time. I just knew that, Hey, this guy's house is awesome. And his dad's always going away to Hong Kong. Like, I wonder what he does. That's, you know, when you're yeah. 10 years old. Uh, but I, I stayed yeah. in touch with this guy over time. And when I was doing my prep school, so in France, when you want to go to business school, you have to do two years of prep school. So it's like an intense, oh. uh, very selective process of learning everything you can about ent entrance exams for business schools. And then you basically, based on your scores at that, you get put in the best business schools and so forth. So I was, I was doing that in France. Um, and during that time, they kind of encourage you to do an internship to figure out what you want to sort of specialize yourself in during business school. Um, so I completely randomly reached out to my buddy uh, in the UK and asked if his dad had any openings for an internship. I, I kind of dabbled a little bit in finance. I was interested by the stock market, but nothing very specific. So I reached out to him and he said, look, very happy to have you on board as an intern. Uh, I didn't know what he did, to be honest. I knew it was something in finance, something in London. Um, so I, he told me, OK, this is a list of books you have to read. Uh, this is what you have to learn before you come. Like, I want to make sure your math levels are this and that. So thankfully, I had all that uh, and basically it turned out to be a fund of hedge funds. So. What they did is they had institutional money and then they would place it into various hedge funds. So kind of similar to like a, a, a venture cap that invests in a bunch of different funds or different companies. Uh, it was super interesting. So I spent four months in London uh, being exposed to all these different hedge funds, uh, super smart guys from quants to like, you know, there's a variety of different hedge funds, but basically got exposed to that. Uh, and at that point I was like, okay, I really like finance. It's super interesting. It's basically utilizing my brain as much as possible. And there's a very good compensation outcome from that. So why not? And there's a lot of opportunity to travel. And basically, the, my buddy's father told me, look, if you graduate with this and this from business school, 
do two years of investment banking, then I'll hire you. So that was my trajectory at that point. I thought, man, that sounds really easy. Like <clears throat> I'm already about to go to business school, investment banking for two years. I have no idea what investment banking was, but I said, sure, why not? And <laughs> that was basically the idea. Uh, but what happened is I ended up going to business school and I studied for investment banking, did all the, the finance. Uh, and then I, I did a couple of internships during business school to learn more about what finance really was on a day-to-day -day basis, what it, how it was in Montreal versus the UK, because it's very different. And that's where I probably have to do it for two years. Uh, and I realized on a day-to-day -day basis that what I was doing was not as uh, exciting as what I was exposed to in, in London during my internship. Uh, it was kind of kind of routine and basically the hierarchy in finance was just so heavy that you'd have to stay mm. in the office and be the latest to leave or the last to leave the office. There were all these rules. And this is also from my childhood. I, I've always been raised to kind of challenge rules. Uh, and my boss, after you know two years of back and forth internships, just told me, look, I really like you. You're a smart guy, but you're very insubordinate. Uh, I don't think investment <laughs> banking will be for you. You'll be miserable in investment banking. You'd be better off doing your own thing. And that was kind of like the key. I never thought about doing my own thing ever. Like I told you my entire background, never did it come to mind yeah. that I would build a business one day. So that was kind of the trigger for me to start exploring entrepreneurship. And back then, uh, startups were super hot. You'd always hear about all these Silicon Valley startups. I'm talking around 2009. So right after the okay. financial yep. crisis, there were all these new startups that were blooming. So you know, Facebook was blowing up, Twitter, and basically tech was in. Uh, still is, but back then it was really like every guy's dream to have a tech startup. So I told myself, uh, and I hope I don't babble too much, but uh, I told myself I really want to build a tech startup at some point. I have no idea what it's going to be, um, but I have to do it. Uh, and... I don't know if I'm already like stepping into your future questions, but what happened is I graduated. Uh, I had $5,000 to my name and I know in, in Asia that might seem like a lot, but in, in Canada, that's basically two, two and a half months of rent. So I didn't have that much to fall back on. Uh, and I had to figure out a way to make that money work uh, to build something. Um, so essentially, I had this vision to build a tech company, but what happened is I ended up building a service company that would enable me to get cash flow rapidly because, you know, that's, you know, you read about people building tech companies and it could take years before they make money. They have to raise funds when you're a fresh graduate and you have no background, no history or anything. It's very hard to raise money, right? Especially in Canada. It's not Silicon Valley. So instead I decided to build a service business. And it's super random, but you, you probably saw in my LinkedIn, uh, this company I built called Stinson Design. So mm -hmm. what it was is um, during my finance days, all I was doing every day except modeling in Excel was b doing presentation decks, whether it's for yep. a you know fundraise or pitching our company or whatever. I was the one doing the, the pitch decks, which made no sense because I had no design background. I was not the most... <laughs> like. I was not the most knowledgeable about what we did. I knew it, but somehow the role of building presentations just falls back on the junior. And during university, I had a friend of mine who was excellent at doing presentation. He was kind of mandated by our group of friends to always do their presentations. 
and he was doing them in this cool back then a cool software called Keynote, which was just sort of emerging, and he was really like blow, uh, blowing minds with uh, professors because the keynotes were really compelling, beautifully de designed. They had animation, so I just reached out to my buddy and I said, "Look, uh, I know you don't have a job because you you told me and you're looking. I want to build a business." <laughs> would you be interested in doing presentations for a living? And this was kind of like, I'm trying to, you know, project myself back then. And I had no idea where I pulled that idea out of, but basically it was a combination of me doing that for, as a job and knowing someone who does it and realizing that there must be a better way, like than to give it to the junior guy, maybe give a little professional edge to your presentation. So that's when Stinson design was born. And essentially, I had a deadline of two and a half months to start making money before I had to either find a job or go back to my parents' house in France, which was not an option. Um, um, do you want me to continue Tim, on let me trajectory? Jump. Or you wanna... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to go back to two parts. Uh, uh, what books did uh, that guy ask you to read? Like, he was like, here's a summer list. Like, what books did he ask you to read? So, I don't remember the entire list. There was 10 books, but I remember some that really impacted me. So one of them was Lies Poker. I don't know if it okay. rings a bell, very finance book. And the other one was uh, Too Big to Fail, The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital Management, LTCM. Great books. Yep. And those really teach you what the finance was, what finance was in the 80s and 90s. Super exciting. Um, yeah, very very testosterone driven. I don't know. It was something that appealed to me. So yeah, yeah. those were the books. Huh. That's interesting. I, I feel like, um, I, I mean, I just didn't have much visibility into finance. I mean, I, I never was going to, I never was a finance person. Uh, although my father wanted me to be a quant, he was oh, wow. like, Oh, you do CS and math, like move to New York and be a quant. He was like, you should, that's, that's, that's your path. You should do that. And I was like, that doesn't sound fun at all. Um, but, I think the thing I've, met, I've since read a lot, quite a bit about finance, and I think the thing that surprised me about finance was that it continues to develop. It's like a field, right? Like there was theories and ways to do stuff uh, decades ago that no longer are kind of done, and you know, yep. uh, portfolio theories kind of evolve. And so I, I don't know. I just kind of thought it was like a static kind of area where it was like. Yeah, people move money around and invest stuff, but actually, it kind of evolves quite a bit, and there's new theories and research oh, and all that. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Definitely, it's it's quite fascinating, but it is it's a bit of a dinosaur overall. So if you're someone yeah. who's hyperactive, has a bit of ADD, and needs to get stuff done quickly, it's it's not it's not a good place to be. The other part that I thought was interesting too is, is that um, the insubordinate part is, a, is is literally a description that I people had told me. Mm -hmm. They were like, you're really good, but you're just, uh, you're kind of a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. You're always asking why and yeah. you like just question things all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, where do you think that comes from for you? Like, uh, I mean, I don't, is that, were your parents that way? Was it like, I don't know, something no. in your upbringing? Where no, my parents from? are fairly conservative. Um, I mean, I guess they're diplomats. Like, they kind of have to be a little bit, right? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I came from a Christian upbringing, so usually we don't ask so many questions. You know, otherwise you start to question religion itself. Yeah, really big uh, things. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but I came from a family of four kids, uh, and so you kind of have to fight for everything. Uh, you debate mm -hmm. everything. You talk a lot. And yeah, you kind of question things. I don't know. I, honestly, it's a good question. I have no idea where it came from, but 
as a kid, I was always like that. I was always sort of questioning or like, you couldn't just tell me, don't do this. I'd be like, sure, but why, you know, like I'm totally right. fine not doing something. If you give me a rational explanation, I'm not just going to take your word for it. So I think some of us have that intrinsically. I don't know. I've always tried to, I think this is a thing that a lot of entrepreneurs have. And so it's just like, we just end up in these places because it's like, we just suck as employees. Mm -hmm. Like we're yeah. just terrible. Um, and I always debate whether it's like a nature nurture thing. I mean, it's never just one or the other. With your siblings, is are, are they kind of like you or is it kind of everybody is different? Yeah, so they are kind of like me. I'm the eldest, by the way. I have a younger sister and two younger <laughs> brothers who are twins. And... It's funny. So my sister sort of went in biology for her studies. And then I don't know if I had any impact on her life, but then she decided to become a consultant and be like her own boss. So that's what she's been doing for the last two years. Uh, my One of my brothers is a lawyer in Kuwait. So he got the travel bug, but he's wow. more like, you know, the standard type of uh, traditional career. But still guy. Kuwait. Yeah, still Kuwait, totally random. <laughs> and then my other brother, he's, uh, he's also an entrepreneur. So he built a company, um, I think five years ago in Malaga. And since then he got married to a Lithuanian and now he's living in Lithuania and he's also still running that business. So definitely something in our upbringing turned us into more or less entrepreneurs and, and travelers. That's, that's the easy one to yeah. figure out. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. I feel like yeah, your siblings are all like, I'm sure they, they all have like great stories. Like it sounds like your family is just interesting. Um, going back to the, going back to the like Stinson design part and that part of it. So it was like, you're basically like, I mean, it's, I feel like that whoever your boss was, who was told you was like, Hey, I don't, I don't think you're going to want to do this. Like you, you should kind of do your own thing. I don't know if they, they probably didn't think about how much of an impact that has, but like, that's, I think in hindsight, that probably is like kind of a big thing. It's like a nice thing for them to kind of like say, right? Definitely an inflection point in my life. And actually, I've, I've already told my old boss and I've stayed in touch with him. And I, I yeah. kind of thanked him for it, basically, because he did have a major impact on my career. Uh, I don't know if he meant it in a good way or not, but it did have a positive yeah. impact yeah. on my life. <laughs> so and when you started doing it, I mean, you were kind of like, you just quit cold turkey. You were like, you had this conversation with him and then you were like kind of soon after you're like quit only got $5,000 in the bank. And like you, you quit not really having a plan. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a hundred percent fair to say. I quit. <laughs> I, I said, I'm going to spend two months in France. So I quit in June. Uh, and then okay. I spent two months in France. I was discussing ideas with my buddy, the guy, the keynote guy. I was discussing yeah. ideas because I wanted to figure out what exactly we would build. Because back then, a presentation design agency did not exist. Uh, actually, there was one called Duarte that was basically doing presentations for Apple uh, officially as an agency, but it didn't exist. No one paid to get professional presentations unless they hired a consultant internally, but there was no agency for it. So kind of had to create that concept from scratch. And figure out if it would take right like and and i didn't really have a proof of concept in the sense that i had a negative proof of concept when i had already seeded the idea to my old boss told him that i wasn't very good at presentation and that we should hire someone to do them 
And he told me, look, historically, it's been your role as a junior. So we don't have a budget for it. And I don't think it's necessary. So I was already on a, the right track to fail, but didn't sort of deter me. I mean, this is like a thing now. Like I know at YC before demo day, it's like sometimes there's like people start passing around referrals for like making yeah. decks and stuff. So I think in the start. So and by the way, for all the audience out there, we've done probably all... 20 YC decks in the past already. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Um, I, I, you might disagree with me since you were in this business, but just for the rest of the audience, like you're, if you're working on your first deck, probably don't hire a designer like work on the content and the growth numbers first. Like, don't worry about that yet, but, uh, you know, at some point it probably helps. Where did you guys get your first like couple customers? I mean, your, your boss was basically like, we, we, we're not going to pay for that. We have junior analysts to do that. Yeah. Plot twist. He decides to work with us a few months later, but. Uh, initially, yeah, the first few customers, uh, I was basically networking, like the, I had no experience in sales. I had no experience in anything. Let's be honest. I was young. Yeah. I was, gosh, how old were 20, you? 21 or 22, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Maybe 20. Yeah. 22, I'd say. Uh, and you know, I looked a lot younger than I do now. Uh, suits were oversized and, you know, did not look professional at all, but somehow I had to convince senior level people to trust some funds into my little business, make them believe that we're going to bring some value and to, you know, like, yeah, basically trust us. Um, so I went to networking events. That was my first intuition, kind of oh. an old school uh, legacy of our business school. Business schools kind of teach you old, old fashioned ways of doing business. Everything you learn in business school is already obsolete by at least five to 10 years. So I was going to networking events and every single networking event I could, I could find online on meetup or whatever. I would go to it with my little business cards and just try to get meetings. Uh, and thankfully I managed to use my charms or something. And I secured a number of meetings in the first few months. Uh, and we actually signed our first client the second month already. Um, clients was very small, but basically, uh, this one, I actually got it from Elance. Do you know, do you remember Elance? It's kind of yeah. like the- Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. Or whatnot. So that was the second idea was to start posting uh, Stinson Design as, a, as an agency on Elance, trying to get contracts from there. So we started getting contracts, but I mean, you know the type of client you get on, on Upwork or Elance. It's like, yeah. pay as little as possible and have the highest expectations. So. We were working on presentations for days on day. And basically our hourly rate was like below $10 by that time. But we were making we were making revenue, right? So that's how we started surviving the first few months. And you know, for me, having income was better than not. So we started doing that and we built a portfolio. That was the key as well is we had no portfolio when I was pitching to these people at networking events. So when they wanted to see samples, I had nothing to show for. So we started building a portfolio on Elance and we we're just taking as many projects as we could. And the projects were ranging from 300 to 800 bucks. The first time we cracked a thousand, I was like, oh my God, you know, we've, we've discovered a pot of gold. <laughs> what was your pitch at the networking events? You just like showed up in your oversized suit and you just like walk up to people and you're like, Absolutely. do you make just, PowerPoint presentations? No, I will make them I for mean, you. I'm a little more subtle than that. So I, I've just built the relationship. Okay. I'd be like, oh, you know, what are you doing here? Like, what are you guys trying to like? What are you trying to learn? This and that, you know, try to build conversations. I never did direct marketing. Like I was always trying to build a relationship. And then in a follow-up conversation, I'd talk a little bit about TendoPay. Oh, I'm too, the habit is now a force of habit with TendoPay. Yeah. No, about <laughs> yeah. Design. 
Yeah. So it was more of building a relationship and that's why it didn't really have any fruits in the first few months. It took a longer time to get those local clients, physical clients to give us any work. Uh, we also got some odd jobs on Elance, which I, I don't need to get into the details with you about because <laughs> we, we want to keep it PG. But basically, we got some very interesting gigs on Elance that paid rent, basically, but were not fun to do at all. Uh, so that, that's how we survived the first few months. And then once we had a portfolio, the next thing we, we, we had to do was build a website. And Right now, like it's so easy to build a website with a template and whatnot, but 10 years ago, as a non-web developer, it was a nightmare. I had to learn everything uh, because I didn't have the money to hire anyone, right? So I had to build a website somehow and the themes were ugly as hell. Somehow it worked, like it enabled us to create a brand and to host our portfolio. And having that online presence helped when I was following up with these needs. Basically, by month mm. four, we signed our first big client in Montreal. I was an advertising agency. And the beauty there was they had basically a project flow. So they were giving us one project every two weeks. Basically, we were building a presentation on, on their behalf for another client. So they, they were passing money along to us. And there we were starting to make decent money. So the budgets were like 1500 to 2000 for a long presentation, mm. but it was still worth it. It was more than we ever made before. And I leveraged that name because it's a very well, uh, it has a great reputation in Montreal. It's a very famous ad agency. And I started leveraging that name with other local players. And basically that really helped build momentum. And I managed to sign like the fifth month, probably five or six local clients, which brought our revenue up to 10K for the month, which was a massive milestone, right? So yeah, from then yeah. on, it was just leveraging one thing to the other. But the biggest inflection point for that business was when I uh, thought myself AdWords, uh, because all of a sudden I managed to turn outbound sales, which were really time consuming and not very fruitful, into inbound sales. And I like I was terrible at it, but I managed to get leads, which was crazy. And then all of a sudden we started getting one lead a day, then two, then five. And I'm projecting myself in the future. By that time, I already yeah. moved to Toronto and started getting an office and whatnot. But uh, basically, like Stinson really grew when we figured out AdWords and we figured out inbound sales. Uh, we were able to reach, you know, 10 leads a day by the time I sold it. Uh, and it was already making a few million a year. But basically, it, it was a very interesting progression once we went fully online and built an inbound sales strategy. So it's, it's interesting. You know, just like picking up the, like your progression with that business, it was like, you basically, and it, it, it honestly, it sounds exactly like a, even like a tech startup. I mean, this was more of an agency, but it's like, you basically hustled your butt off in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. There was like nothing fancy about it. You just hustled your butt off yep. and that got you, and you just kept parlaying those gigs into a bigger gig, into more gigs and stuff. Yep. And then you like, then you're like, okay, we got to do this like website thing. I have no idea how to do this website thing. Then you're like, okay, I guess I just have to figure out how to do this. I mean, you weren't technical, it sounds no, like, no. right? So you were just like, I got to make a website. So like you just went online and we're like, how do I make a website? And then yes. you learned that. And then I learned about oh. WordPress, which was like a godsend. Uh, and then I was browsing WordPress uh, and I can't remember the name, but there was a website that had a bunch of different templates. And back then the templates were very rudimentary, but enough for me to look professional. And I started yeah. to learn to customize HTML, CSS, and this and that. And I, 
I was so proud. Like it took me an entire week to build a decent website, which was probably 90% the template, but I was so proud to put out something that I did myself. And yeah, as a non-technical, when you build your first website, you're quite happy. Yeah. And I, f- I feel like it's, and then, and then you learned AdWords. So how did you even hear about AdWords? So you're like, okay, I did this like website thing. And then yeah. it just sounds, it, I it feel like you kept running into these walls. You're like, okay, the business is going pretty well. I, I, I we can't grow it any bigger if I'm just doing stuff. Yes. So I got to now do this outbound thing. Where did you, like, where did you hear about AdWords? So because we were online, I learned a little bit about SEO first. Because like, uh, that's the keyword with everyone's like, if you want to be yeah. referenced, you got to do SEO. So I was Googling, uh, I was using stuff like SpyFu and trying to figure out who our competitors were, uh, if any. Yep. And one time I was Googling PowerPoint presentation agency and I saw an ad with, for something completely irrelevant. It was something on, a, on another platform. I think it was even uh, advertising Elance, but it was advertising PowerPoint presentation design or something on Elance. And I was like, whoa, okay why don't I use these? Like, I'm sure people search for PowerPoint presentation design. And that's how I learned about AdWords, basically. I, I'd never really thought about it from a business perspective. I always kind of clicked on it, you know, as a user without really paying attention. But then all of a sudden, I, I really got conscious of the impact of being on the first line of Google when people search it. Uh, so basically, I tried to learn everything I could about Google Ad, AdWords. So did was anybody kind of like, did you have any like mentors or anybody kind of like telling you about all this like stuff or was it just like you were, it was really, you, you were just kind of figuring it out as you went. Yeah. So no mentors, unfortunately, uh, but like internet was my mentor. So I learned everything from YouTube, from Google. Uh, I mean, YouTube still to this day is my number one source of information. Everything oh. I want to learn is on YouTube. I spent like, shameful amounts of time on YouTube, learning about anything from work to building a cabin to farming, fishing, hunting, like anything you can think of, I want to learn, I go on YouTube. So I, that's what I did back then too. I learned about AdWords. I learned about business. I learned about web, everything there. I mean, I learned about starting a podcast literally by watching YouTube videos. I was like, so what do you need to do? And like yeah, all of that stuff. So. That's actually such a good uh, I mean, YouTube, the internet, whatever, it's such a good skill to learn for entrepreneurs because it's like, you just have to do this so often. So I think, you know, when we are talking to uh, founders, sometimes like we try to get a sense of like, are they good learners? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we want to teach them stuff and help them with stuff, but like, there's no way we're going to be able to help them and teach them everything. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's such a good, like, it's great that you had that experience. And I think the, the flip part of it too is, is that you learned and then saw the benefits of it. And mm-hmm. that just reinforces like your ability to be like, oh, okay, I'll just learn this because I've done this in the past and it went well. So anything going forward, I can also just do that. Um, and I feel like that attitude turns to be like a superpower. Yeah. And I think um, that using internet to learn stuff, it's basically a question of timing in our childhood. I think yeah. we were kind of the generation yeah. that got computers when we were, 10 to 12 mm-hmm. maybe and mm-hmm. with some like someone who's curious by nature will start to use it properly and so every question i had instead of asking my parents when i realized that they didn't have the answers to so everything like the internet had the answers i was looking for so i exploited that and it became part like it's part of me now any question i have i refer to my phone or to my laptop but it's something that's not 
innate with everyone. Um, so I'm, I'm noticing, and this is not now, they've evolved now, but my siblings back in the day, I was, I was monopolizing the computer. So they never had that screen. Time. <laughs> and it, 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 it basically uh, turned out that when they were teenagers and they had questions and they didn't know what to do with their computer, they would always ask me instead of Googling. And I was always, I got frustrated after a while. I just, I don't remember. I don't remember what it was called, but there was this service you could use where you type the question for someone and send it back to them, and it's basically a Google search for that question, kind of like a just use Google. I, I remember that site. Yes. Yeah, so yes. I, I used to start doing that, and then they got more familiar with it. But it, it's really a question of timing. Like at one point in your life, you're so curious. If you have the right tools, you'll have the uh, the, the means of growing your I don't know your your knowledge base. It's, it's very interesting. I, I feel like also maybe when we were, I think you and I are roughly about the same age. I think yep. when we were growing up too, startups were like getting hot, but not nearly as popular. And certainly kind of information about how to do them was not as widely available as mm -hmm. they were now. Um, and I feel like now it's like, there's so much good information out there on like how to do startups and stuff. Like anybody who's an audience, like you can definitely learn a lot of like, um, guides and just like best practices on how to do startups online. Uh, it is no substitute for actually doing it. I think when you actually do it, you find out that it's like the experience is quite different, but like mm -hmm. all the practical knowledge I feel like is out there. Oh, definitely. I mean, there are entire courses that are practically free yeah. where you can learn everything from ideation all the way to execution. So yeah, there's, there's no lack of yeah. information. One of the things I was going through your like LinkedIn too is, is that, I mean, like I thought I was cool because I like started three companies in 12 years, but you've started like six in the last eight. Um, and so like Stinson was just like the beginning of kind of like many companies to come. I think, I feel like every company has its own story, but like maybe on like a broader level, like what, what do you think was kind of the commonality between like, kind of like each of the companies and like what kept you going, like continuously kind of like wanting to start these things? Yeah. So I can go chronologically, but basically when I had Stinson, yes, it was making money, but it was not what I was, it was not my ambition to have a service business. I always mm. wanted to create a tech business, something like a startup, you know, something cool, yep. Yep. a product. So when I started making money with, uh, with Stinson, it allowed me to fund my ambition of building a tech startup. And if you look mm. on my LinkedIn, that one, the, the first basically product that I ever built was called Predico. Um, so I was really into social, I was really into uh, gaming and stuff like that as a, as a human. So I wanted to build a social game essentially. And those were super popular back then. Uh, if you, you know, if you could build, I don't remember what they were called, but like candy crush and stuff like that, all these social games or boards with friends, you'd be making like millions, if not more. Right. So. Uh, I essentially started funneling money from Stinson into this product. I hired a tech team uh, and it was really cool product. Actually, it was basically a social app that allowed you to uh, wager with friends on the outcome of different TV related items. So like a TV show oh. or sports or the news or whatnot, you could bet like social betting, right? It's not real money, but you could bet on the outcome and basically build a score and like being scoreboards and stuff like that. So it was really exciting uh, and the game was working really well. Uh, but basically when I moved to Toronto uh, and you know, I had both this Predico and Stinson going at once, 
there was a, a point where I started raising money for Credico uh, and I got a term sheet for an accelerator, but I kind of, I, I lost my technical co-founder and I realized mm. that finding someone to take his place and learn the code base would be a very long like stretch of time. And the accelerator was already off the table because I lost the uh, technical co-founder. And so at that point, I kind of gave up, unfortunately, because Stinson was making a lot of money and there was a lot of opportunity to grow it. Uh, and so that's the time I decided I'm going to focus my efforts on Stinson. I sold the code for Predico to someone else who was looking to build something similar. Um, so it was my first exit, but we're talking about a very little sum of money, basically not even covering my costs, right? But uh, yep. it was cool, though. It was a cool experience. Uh, and that sort of was my first attempt at building a product. But then I really got focused on Stinson Design and I got really good at service. Uh, I built a really mm. like like significantly bigger team in Toronto. I got some nice offices uh, and I started discovering other opportunities in services. And I can talk to you a little bit about Candy Banners and how I got into that. But basically uh, in Toronto, I got to meet this guy who was a freelancer for ad agencies. And back then he was building flash banners on the side as a sort of a gig that he was quite good at. So these ad banners, but were built in flash back then. And I remember. we became friends over the years and uh, I took him to Cabarete with me. I wanted to teach him kite surfing. So we went to Dominican Republic, spent two weeks there. And I was seeing him working on his little laptop at night, building these banners. So I, I started asking him, look, what are these? Like, are these the banners we see on websites and stuff? He's like, yeah, these are built in flash and it's very simple animations and stuff. And then I asked him how much. And he threw a number at me, which I was blown away by because presentations, we were charging, you know, 1500 on the low end and then some very, very high numbers on the high end, but there was yeah. a lot of work and it requires a, a lot, like a project manager and art directors some designers. And he was doing these banners yes. on his own and he was charging like 2,500 for five banners. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like you built those banners overnight and you made 2,500 from that. That's insane. So like the, you know, wheels started spinning in my head and I started thinking like, can I build a business out of this? Like, can I partner with this guy who's like very good at what he's doing? I can be the business side and build something else. Uh, so I started like looking into it uh, and I, of course, I'm not going to give up stints in it. This was my main, main gig, but I started thinking, like started putting out feelers and seeing, was this a one-off with this agency or was every agency uh, subcontracting that type of work? And it turned out every single agency in Toronto was subcontracting flash design because a flash developer mm. with like $80,000 a year. And they didn't want to have any staff for that, especially as it was a kind of dying technology. They didn't want to have someone doing flash only. So they were subbing it out. Um, and so I told my, my buddy, Jan, I said, look, do you want to go 50-50 on a business? I think we can build a big business out of this. Like based on what you're charging, based on what I've seen in Toronto alone, let alone in North America, I think we could build this big. So he was down with it. I mean, he'd, he'd seen me work on Stinson, so he knew I could build something. So I basically put Stinson in, man like I, I put it under management. I, I kind of automated that. And I went yep. full steam on Candy Banners. And basically, we started reaching out to every single agency in Toronto, trying to figure out if they were looking for a flash, uh, flash developer, etc. And within a few months, we ran into a situation where Jan was completely overwhelmed with work. 
and we needed to hire uh, developers. And as I mentioned earlier, Flash developers were 80K a year. So we had nowhere near that type of money and we didn't want to take that type of risk. So me knowing Elance and Upwork and all this stuff, I thought, why don't we try to subcontract our own work to someone else <laughs> in a foreign land, right? So we put out feelers in six different countries and I'm sure like the, the, the most common ones like China, India, Ukraine, and then this random little country that I know, knew nothing about the Philippines, right? Uh, and we wanted to see how they would perform on a single project, what the rates were, communication, all that stuff. And man, the Filipino guy just turned around the project within overnight, right? Uh, wow. We expected maybe two to three days turnaround. He, he turned it over overnight. He spoke perfect English. He charged a fraction of what the Indian and Chinese guys were, were charging. And we we're like, what? Like, what is the Philippines? Like, who is this guy? He spoke fluent English. <laughs> yeah. We were shocked. So we started feeding him more work. And he was always delivering and always on point like we barely had any feedback and i mean at that time we were making probably like a 20x profit on his work with the agencies Jeez. we were working with so it's like this model is beautiful like can we scale this yeah uh so we told him look we've got much more work to give you, do you can you handle it or do you have any friends you could handle it with so he, he brought on another friend and they they took it on so for like a month and a half we had these two guys working like day in, day out on our projects. And like our agencies were super happy with us. They were giving us more deal flow. It was awesome. But we got to a point where these two guys were not enough, right? We needed to scale. And we told them, look, we know you guys have day jobs, right? Would you be willing to come full time? Would you be able to build a team with us? And they said, look, we don't know you guys. We're not going to quit our jobs. We have like managerial jobs here in Manila. Why don't you come to the Philippines? We'll meet you set up like an infrastructure and then we can talk so two weeks later we were in manila we had like an open-ended ticket we had no idea what we were doing where we were going it was complete adventure it was awesome and uh that's how it all started like the candy banners experience was really fun and it was my first exposure to uh the philippines basically which is where i reside now so clearly that path evolved yeah a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the Philippines, we met the two guys, we, we built a structure, we built an office, and within a couple of years, we had 30 staff uh, doing development wow. in the Philippines, yeah. Was that, was that your first time in Southeast Asia? It was my first time in Southeast Asia, yes. Okay, so you were like, you, you met these two guys on Elance, yep. this business kind of going well, and they're like, hey, you got to come to the Philippines. You're like, sounds good. And so you and, and Yan went down, went over. Yeah. Yeah, we both um, went and then, I mean, this kind of begs the, the story of kind of like, I mean, Yan is one of the uh, uh, works with you at Tendo Pay now. What was your first impression of uh, Philippines and Manila? It was madness. It was absolute madness. I mean, the first thing is, I'm, you know, I, I like to be sort of aware of what I'm doing. So I had read up a lot about the Philippines and, and sort of knew the pitfalls and knew what to do and what not to do. So we weren't completely blind, right? So we arrived and there was, it's already chaos at the airport. Uh, we had to figure out where our hotel was. Um, and a, we got like this three star, but a three star in the Philippines turned out to be this cockroach infested hotel. So there were a lot of nice hiccups on, on the way. But uh, yeah, basically we landed in Makati where I still live. And we really dug it actually. It was a like once we 
figured out all the sort of madness and, and sort of uh, got our bearings. It was a really beautiful place and the people were really welcoming, really cool. It's a nice atmosphere to work in. Like, you know, you might have noticed from how I, I spoke of them, but they're really hardworking people. Uh, they like to deliver, yeah. they like excitement. So they love the idea of working with a team in Toronto. It was like super excited versus, versus working for a local uh, employer. And our employment standards are super lax compared to the employment standards in the Philippines, where there's a hierarchy. Most companies have uniforms here. So they really like the idea of working for a foreign company. And, and in our case, we're young entrepreneurs. So it's not like, you know, these old school methods. Yeah. We kind of let them do whatever they want, as long as they yeah. produce results, basically. How did you meet kind of the rest of the Tendo Pay crew? How did you guys get this idea? Like, Talk about that transition. Sure. So uh, TendoPay basically is originally an idea from Casper, so our CEO. Uh, he was sort of exposed to fintech in his entire career in the Philippines. And he was noticing that there were a lot of gaps, especially in the financing and like lending space. Um, so knowing the growth of players like Klarna and Affirm, uh, he wanted to figure out if there was a way to reproduce the model in the Philippines. And as it turned out, Casper was my next door neighbor in the office we had with Candy Banners. And his boss. Are you serious? Time, yeah, his boss was my best friend from university, which I actually told to go to the Philippines and he built a business there as well. So we already knew each other for quite a while. Uh, and when Casper had that idea, he turned to myself and Jan for technology advice. Basically, at that time, we didn't plan to partner up, right? He was just consulting with us on what, how he should build TendoPay. And Jan and I took a look at it and thought about it and said, look, we're ready for the next project. Uh, we want to build a product. We're kind of tired of service at this point. And it just seemed like a perfect storm to, you know, go full steam ahead on a product in the Philippines with these guys. They seem to be knowledgeable about fintech. So we just decided to offer our services as full-time founders, basically. So Casper was at Coins before. So is that when he, I mean, he was kind of doing a bunch of fintech stuff there. After Coins, he went to Oradian, which is ah. uh, the company my buddy sort of founded in the Philippines. It's, an, it's not founded by him, but he founded the Filipino branch for it. Um, yep. And Casper was working with him in those offices. They just were next door to you and you would just see him in the hall. And I mean, apparently, uh, I mean, I've never, I haven't met Casper in person yet, but he's like a giant. He's like super tall. So you were just yes. like, you kind of so just made friends with him. So in a way, yes. But like I said, he was employed by my buddy. And when I was back and forth in the Philippines, I would always hang out with my friend. Uh, and actually, oh. interestingly enough, we would always play Call of Duty. And then Casper showed up one day with my buddy and he wanted to play with us and stuff. So that's my first interaction with Casper, basically. But then we stayed friendly every like I was there in and out for probably three years meeting Casper every time. Right. So we built a report over time. And then when he kind of came to this idea, he kind of came to you guys. I mean, I guess it sounds like he was kind of asking for advice uh, initially. And then you guys kind of saw the opportunity like, hey, we should just all do this together. Exactly. So he came to, to us for advice. Then once we gave him our advice, he kind of came to us for consulting, like hiring us as a, as a tech consultant. Uh, but we just wanted to be more involved because we knew we couldn't just build some sort of MVP for him. It would, it would have no value. Like 
and we knew how difficult it was to hire tech talent in the Philippines. So it was kind of like, if we don't work on this, it's going to be very tough. Not that he couldn't do it, but it would be very tough to build something like that in the Philippines without a proper tech team. And it just made sense to us as well. We really liked the project. We liked the guy. Uh, we also, you know, like Camille, we, we sort of met over a Visio because we were all in different continents, right? Uh, but it just made sense. And when he spoke about the market opportunity, I had witnessed that as well because I, I had friends who were working in e-commerce and I knew that payments were such a challenge in the Philippines. So, you know, it just clicked and I knew that there was definitely something there when he pitched it. People always have a hard time kind of like meeting co-founders and stuff, but uh, I feel like your story is one that is like, it's the best case scenario, mm -hmm. um, which is like, you just kind of build a relationship with somebody over years and not, not planning to necessarily start a company, but like you just kind of get to know people. And then when something kind of comes up, right, it's like they immediately Super turn to the people kind of around them and they're like, what do you think about this? Right. Which is awesome. Was there much to debate on your end? It sounds like you were pretty ready. You always wanted to build a product. You did it before, but you didn't get it as far as you would like it to go. So when this kind of came up, it was in the Philippines. You had already moved to the Philippines at that point. No, right? I didn't. So I was still in Toronto. And it's not like we went full steam ahead like the day, the day of, right? So I ran a couple scenarios and I started working on some very, very, very early MVPs for Tendopay to figure out if there was even demand for the product. So I didn't jump in that easily. What I did is I built some uh, fake e-commerce website web pages when we were in Toronto. And basically I, we were selling random products like sneakers and things that we knew were, would sell, but the, the, the store was completely fake. Uh, it was like alpha sales.ph or some, some crazy domain we bought. And we would just create a bunch of landing pages for products and under the price, we had buy now, but we also had finance or like buy now, pay later, buy this much per month or whatever. And you'd click on it and then you'd have a sign up form. It was like a type form, right? So super rudimentary. It took us like a few hours to put together. And I ran probably a hundred bucks in AdWords in, uh, in AdWords or in, in uh, Facebook ads. I don't remember, but that, that, that goes quite a long way. Probably like a thousand clicks in the Philippines. Um, so once I realized that people were willing to click on finance it and they were willing to go through an entire application flow back then, it was completely random questions about your salary and stuff like that. But then we, that's when I got the solid, like the firm go ahead on, there is a market for it. People are willing to go through an application process to get this fake sneaker from this fake store. So imagine on a real one. Uh, that was when we decided, let, okay, I'm going to move to the Philippines and we're going to build this. There's, there's a market for it. That's so clever. I feel like uh, what you're, the building the fake site thing is kind of like a tried and true kind of method, right? So yeah. in the Valley, we call that like building, it's basically building fake doors and seeing if people will open the door. But you guys did the like inception thing of one level deeper, which is like you made a fake door that had a fake door inside of it, yeah. um, which is like, so smart it's like that's that's awesome i've never heard of people who built a site to test the thing for the site um well i mean I feel like more people should do that it's a cheap way to test the market right like yeah if people are not willing to give their information for financing then forget it like we can move on to something else for everybody out there like this kind of stuff is the stuff that like if you're thinking about trying to test an idea this is the stuff that you should be like doing um and like this is the stuff that if you are talking to like investors about and they're asking you about you know like 
how you know that there's like um, traction for this or people want this. Like this is the stuff that is the like best, right? You can give me, you can cite me all of the Deloitte uh, studies that you want, but you know, the people who built the fake website to sell the fake thing to get people to sign up is like worth all of the McKinsey reports in the world. Um, so I, I actually have never heard that story and that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I think the benefit in Southeast Asia too is, uh, um, I don't know if people know this here, but like Southeast Asia's uh, uh, cost per impressions and cost per clicks are way lower than like in the US and I'm sure Canada. Super it's like good. way lower. So like a hundred bucks will get you a long, long way. It's not like you need to throw like 10K at this. Like it'll get you a long 100%, 100%. way. Casper kind of was pitching this idea. You're like, okay, that seems kind of interesting. Were you running the test yourself to prove it to yourself or kind of yeah, as a group, so you're like, hey, let's run these things? No, no, I pitched, I pitched them to run this test because it was going to help me validate the product, but I, it was also for them. Like, helps everybody. Look, yeah, yeah, it helps everybody. It's work out. Might as well know, right? Uh, but that's yeah. how I've done it before for many other projects I've done from selling fake stuff on e-commerce to, to you know, pitching projects, etc. I've always tried to, to you know, test it before jumping into it. Um, so that was a cheap way to do it. But yeah, definitely. I was doing it for myself, but it helped everyone, basically. I feel like when I've told people to do this in the past, they get nervous about like setting up a fake store. They're like, oh, are people going to get mad if they like don't get the shoes and stuff? I was just like, never charge the credit card. I, I don't know what you guys did, but like you just don't actually charge it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, so definitely you can like if you're any good at analytics, you can follow people through a funnel, right? So you don't have to actually charge, yeah. as you said. But I've yeah. I've done a lot of e-commerce stores for fun, uh, just as hobbies, and I've always charged for the product and then returned the money. Just you validate that you get a sale and then you, you refund them and tell them, look, we're 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 out of stock or whatever. They don't care. We're like, backed up. Yeah, and it fine. never hurts your market. You're selling to like ten or hundred people out of like millions. It's never going to affect you. It's it's it can only benefit you. I think that's the other thing too that I we talk to founders about sometimes when they're like we're they want their launch to be perfect because they're like oh we only get one chance with customers and I was like if your cust if your market is only the number of customers that are going to see you in your first day of launch your market is so small none of us should be doing this like you should work on it we shouldn't invest in it none of us should yeah. do this so that's fascinating I mean it's like. You, on some level, it's like to meet co-founders, you almost just need to be in the game. Like you need to be around other people kind of working and stuff. Um, we were the same. I mean, I think Brian and my brother worked at Zillow together. And Brian basically was like, I need a technical co-founder. Uh, he thought my brother was good. That's how it happened. And so you kind of need to be in the game. Um, where did you guys, for Tendo Pay, uh, where did you guys get your first like 10 customers from? And, and maybe I guess talk a little bit about what the first version of Tendo Pay when you guys actually launched looked like. Oh boy, the first version of TendoPay. So, okay, once we actually built a physical pilot, so an MVP that was functional, we had signed four different merchants. So some very tiny merchants, because we did, in this case, we really didn't want to burn ourselves with some bigger merchants. So we had to find merchants that A, didn't have so much traffic that were willing to take another payment method that was brand new, etc. So we signed these four merchants and we, we gave them TendoPay for free so they didn't have to pay any commissions or whatnot. And to find our first clients was, was super straightforward. I mean, we built a very rudimentary application flow uh, and then we ran some Facebook ads and basically sell, saying you can buy this laptop for 40,000 pesos, so like a thousand bucks or for you know 20 bucks per every two weeks for the next 
10 years. I'm just exaggerating. But basically, when yep. you advertise that on Facebook, people will click because, you know, why not get something ch cheaper or for, for less money per month than you would upfront? Uh, and then we'd have an application flow and we we probably signed like a couple couple hundred clients in the first week just from running ads. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the Philippines, we're lucky that first of all, the purchasing power is quite low. So there's a need for financing and financial options are just very antiquated. So uh, if you want a loan here and you want to go to a bank, first of all, you, you won't find out about it on social media or at least like three years ago, you didn't. And just to, to go through an application process online was virtually unheard of, right? So people would be tempted and they just do it. And, and that's how we got our first clients. Wow. So, I mean, it just kind of worked right away. I mean, that, I guess the initial stage kind of just worked right away, right? Yeah. I mean, giving money to people, it's quite easy. I'll be honest. <laughs> I was telling my, uh, my parents when we were starting kind of iterative, I was like, Hey, so we got like 200 applications in the first two months. And my dad's response was, you're giving people money, right? And I was like, <laughs> I, we're investing it. He's like, yeah, but you're giving them money. And I was like, yeah. He's like, uh, who's not signing up for money? Like, you know what I mean? I was like, fair enough. Like, good point. Um, Same thing here. Just to kind of like, just to kind of wrap things up a little bit. I, I want to kind of like, I always try to wrap things up with kind of like some uh, fun stuff. Uh, you and I talked briefly about this. So I've been hoping, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while. Um, it became clear in when we were working together that we, at some point we both played video games somewhat competitively and probably took it a little bit more seriously than we should have. Yeah. Um, what game did you play? Um, so I'm, I'm a big FPS player. Um, so, I mean, what got me started really a while ago was, I don't know if you know games like Wolfenstein and, I mean, of course, Goldeneye. Of course, man. Yeah, yeah so GoldenEye, really Dukem, all that. Yeah, early teenagehood, I was obsessed with those games. Uh, and then I discovered yep. probably the love of my life, Half-Life. Uh, I became, like, I played yep. hundreds of hours in the dark at home. And it was kind of scary and yep. exciting. And it was like this game that I just got obsessed with over and did over and over. And that's also when I discovered forums to learn how to get by certain, uh, you know, parts of a game. And I got addicted to the communities and stuff. So Half-Life kind of changed my life. Uh, and then during high school, I started playing uh, more like land games. So I was playing Quake 3 Arena, Unreal Tournament, Team Fortress and stuff like that. Uh, and then later in high school, I, I discovered Counter-Strike. So that's when my obsession began. And I had to play. I was always in like internet cafes, basically after school, sometimes during school. Uh, and that's kind of you were talking about semi-competitive so that's the counter-strike was really what uh what took me uh, and then i had to kind of stop because high school was becoming unmanageable and i did want to get into a good university so i gave up on it <laughs> probably uh in the last two years of high school and kind of gave up gaming for a while and then like you know five six years later when stinson was doing okay I started playing games casually and uh, I bought a console and I discovered uh, Call of Duty, which I knew nothing about. I, everyone was talking about Call of Duty. I, I picked it up with Black Ops 2, so super late. And wow, like playing online with people, I, I my competitiveness came back to me and wow, I spent so many hours <laughs> on Black Ops 2. It's unreal. Uh, and it, it's kind of this obsessive uh, personality where I have to become good. I have to get up the rankings. Um, so yep. probably for six months, I played 
very competitively on Black Ops 2. Uh, and then I stopped completely because I started Candy Banners and I had to focus on work again. Like it wasn't like a smooth sailing like I used to be. I completely stopped. And then this pandemic, actually, I bought a, a what is it, a PS4? Yeah, it's, it's a PS4. I was like, PS3 or PS4? Oh, I can't keep traffic anymore. A P- PS5 is about to come out. Yeah, so PS5 is about to come out. But I, I like, look, in the Philippines, we had a lockdown where for four months, no, nothing was open except grocery stores. So the day before yeah. the, the, they shut down, I didn't know it was going to last that long. <laughs> I bought a PS4 and a bunch of games. And among yeah. those games was Call of Duty Modern, War, Modern Warfare 3. And that, that you know, obsession, that uh, addiction just came back to me. So I played a lot, a lot. And to be honest, our business, Tendope, was on standstill because... Uh, our yeah. president here shut down the economy, including e-commerce, and we weren't allowed to collect loans. So basically for three months, yeah. we couldn't issue loans. We couldn't collect loans. Our business was dead. So I was playing Call of Duty way too much, basically. Uh, I've stopped <laughs> since, uh, since they reopened the economy in May, but um, yeah. that's basically my background. How about you? Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I feel like now I feel like I'm just the Malaysian version of you. Because it was the same. I mean, it was like I played Duke Nukem, I played Wolfenstein, like all of those, like Doom, all that, like all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Half Life was the game where it was like that kind of changed everything for me. I was like, this is a much richer experience. And then, I mean, Counter Strike. Uh, I mean, I traveled around the U.S. playing in Counter Strike tournaments, uh, like going to like lands and stuff. And like, uh, I had to stop when I got to college because there was about two semesters where I was skipping midterms. Because I was playing on this competitive Counter Strike team, and the tournament was the same. Was like I had to miss the midterm so I could make it to a tournament, wow. and so I would just like skip school on midterms to like go play in this like Counter Strike tournament. That's and funny. like, that's not kind of. It was really fun, but like mm-hmm. at some point I was like, okay, I like can't do this. This is ridiculous. Um, and uh, it sounds. I know, right? Like, why is, I feel like gamers these days they're never gonna get up to it. Like, there's something just about like bringing your computers and you're all sitting at the table and like yelling, like, yeah, I mean, Discord is awesome. great, but like, it's different. Um, wait, so you playing Call of Duty on the controller? Yeah. Yeah, I transitioned. How did console. you make that switch? So yeah. I made the switch with, uh, with an Xbox. Black Ops. Yeah, yeah with Black Ops 2. Uh, at first it was like, okay, I'm never going to pick this up. I got to get a, a gaming computer, whatever. But dude, you pick it up after like a few weeks. I was better with the remote than with the, the computer. Until, oh, until with Modern Warfare 3, uh, they now have cross-platform, right? So they have cross-device, sorry. So they have PS, Xbox, and PCs. And now you realize how much better someone on a PC, how, how fast and accurate they are. And man, like that makes me miss it a little bit. But I'm just, I can't commit to something like that. But yeah, controller so is, I, is very uh, easy to pick up if you're versus a controller, basically. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like you can't put people on a on a mouse against people on a like that's just that's not fair. That. Like the for Modern Warfare Three, yeah. right? So it's crazy. Yeah, um, I so okay, I had like a I had like a roller coaster of emotions as you were telling me about this because when you were like. Oh, the the controller is pretty easy to pick up because I haven't been playing any FPS. I never I never touched any Call of Duty because I was like I don't have a PC anymore, mm-hmm. right? So I was like I'm not gonna buy a PC just to like yeah. play FPSs. Like I don't want to do that. 
But then when you were like, oh, the controller, like that kind of works. I was like, oh no, I got a PS4 over there. Like, <laughs> am I going to do this tonight? And then yeah, when you were like, okay, but like the, but the mouse is kind of like, you know, still there. Like, wait, so is the, but wait, you're not, are you, so you have, you have forums, oh, sorry, you have, uh, yeah. you, you have options to remove people with PCs basically and just to play with other PS4. Uh, yeah. Okay. And you're playing, what are you playing now? Uh, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 3. Okay. Modern Warfare. Okay. Uh, am I gonna get into that? If I if I if I get into this game, uh, I don't know if you've got a Discord channel, but we're gonna have to. I'm gonna get it, and then I'm gonna be like, "Hey Tim, yeah, yeah, like, I'm on Discord. <laughs> we got to get into this Discord channel. We got to. Yeah. You're gonna have to suffer through me for the first like, oh dude, uh, no. couple first couple of all, playthroughs. I haven't played in the last four months, so it goes okay. up and down, right? Like you build it up, yeah, and I never got back to anywhere close to where I was. Uh, during Call, uh, Call of Duty Black Ops 2. And even then, I was nowhere near my Counter-Strike time. So I just devolved. Uh, by the way, I played Counter-Strike with a friend like two or three weeks ago. I just like loaded it up and he and I, I, he was he was like, oh, dude, I want to see you like play Counter-Strike. And I was like, all right, sure. So I like loaded it up. Um, I'm terrible. Like, Which one did you, you play? The CS, what's, what's CS the one Go? now? Uh, CSGO, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it feels a little bit different, but like, it's funny because I know, I know where to go still. Like, mm -hmm. I still remember how to play, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah people are going to come out of here and you want to be here. And there's this funny spot here. Like, I remember all that stuff, but I just like can't hit anything. Um, uh, and like, I just don't have any of that down anymore, right? And so, people uh, nowadays use aimbots and stuff. It's kind of not fun to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Well, thanks. I appreciate you um, taking the time to um, tell us about your story. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks,